I can't dance, gonna ask my fans, boy I can't dance, gonna ask my fans. I reckon my voice is actually dropped. Let me try this. I'm Krista Tippett, welcome to On Being. No? Okay, look, I might not have the voice. The good news is I do have all the answers this week. Thanks to you, with your help, I am going to single-handedly solve all the questions that have come up over the last couple of episodes, and there have been plenty of them. We've been talking about free versus formal verse. We've been talking about education in poetry. We've even touched on the question of the poetry workshop, which is one that has fascinated and slightly infuriated me for a long time but I got it all figured out now because I got so much great feedback from you all and I'm going to share it here I realized that when I put this out actually yesterday yesterday was the anniversary yesterday was seven years since I put out my first episode of Poetry Says and I was just having a conversation with none other than Matt Wall, where I was talking about the fact that, um, yeah, the first five years was just me talking to myself, pretty much. Um, I had some dedicated listeners who I know are still out there and who are still listening to me and who started listening to me really early on, and you guys are just incredible to me. I am so, so grateful. But there were many times in those five odd years where I thought, I don't actually think anyone listens. (laughs) So I think I could just say whatever I want. Um, And it's only been in the last probably year and a half since I started making the show every week that I have started to get a back and forth going with you all and to actually have a conversation happening and it is so satisfying and beautiful and encouraging. I learned so much from your responses and from thinking through what I think and yeah I'm just I feel really lucky and kind of amazed that I'm still sitting here doing this. I started this genuinely inside a cupboard in our tiny little flat in London where I was deeply lonely and I've learned so much and I've met so many people through this show. It's, yeah, there've just been so many gifts. So as I say, I got emails about episode 221, my interview with Pio and Collective Effort. I got plenty of feedback about my conversation with Elijah Blumov about the question of writing in meter and rhyme, formal verse versus free verse, and some notes too about my questions on poetry education and how we should be teaching poetry. I was talking about the example of a young man who isn't the world's greatest reader and who was being uh, asked to read and interpret a Wilfred Owen poem and it wasn't going well. And as I say, it's... It's a joy to hear from all of you on all of these things and to hear from people who, particularly who say, 
I have been listening to you for ages, but I've never written in. It's so cool that you're out there. And if you've been listening for ages and you've never written in and you never want to write in, totally get that. And hi, nice to have you. So this question of meter and rhyme, let's start there. So I had this conversation with Elijah Blumov of the Versecraft podcast and uh, we, we disagree about this question of using meter and rhyme, writing in formal verse. Elijah's position is that this should be the default for poets. Free verse should be used only if the poet can truly justify that they, they have a good reason for moving away from meter and rhyme. I got so many great responses. I heard from Aaron who I was in Joshua Megan's class with, and he started by saying, unlike Alice, I love a good muddy brawl of ideas, and I'm glad Alice and you, as in Elijah, were able to sling some mud. And just like in most good poetry, there are multiple ideas at play, and I find myself wondering if both or all can be true. And uh, not to skip to the end, but that is basically where I'm at with it. I feel like... Both all can be true. I don't actually feel like there is a um, unresolvable conflict here. I do. I'm very, very aware of the fact that in even engaging in this conversation, I am taking on a, a an argument or a division that is just so much more present in the U.S. than it is in Australia. And so, I suppose I'm trying not to get too wrapped up in it and too distracted by it. But there are a few things that I think are worth unpacking and are kind of interesting to chew on for a moment. First of all, most people pretty much agreed with Elijah's point of view to some extent, and that surprised me. Most people who wrote in said that, yes, it is good to understand meter and rhyme as a poet. Nobody said, you know what? These are old-fashioned, pointless tools. No one should bother with them anymore. This is what I think of as the Bernadette Mayer stance. There was that wonderful moment when she was talking to Alphil Reese in workshop uh, or in a presentation of some kind, and she said something along the lines of, well, why would you want to use those, <laughs> those tools anyway? Why would you want to engage with that stuff anymore? So old-fashioned. People don't seem to think like this at all. People seemed really supportive of the idea that, yes, meter and rhyme are really good things for poets to learn. They can only make our writing better. And we all want that. The other thing that really stood out to me when people wrote in was that we almost all immediately go to analogy. It's a funny thing, the way we frame these conversations, these arguments. We want to talk about poetry not by talking directly about poetry, but by talking about how it's the same as other art forms. I wonder why that is. I wonder if it's an impulse to make poetry equivalent to these other art forms. Is it some kind of legitimizing impulse? Or is it just a good way to make a point? So the first person we heard from was Coleman, who is dedicated listener to my show, to Matthew's show, Slee Ricketts, and to Versecraft as well, probably a whole bunch of other poetry podcasts. And he sent Elijah and I an email titled, 
poetry and dance. I'm going to condense it. I'm going to be paraphrasing everybody I quote here today. And so, uh, as Matthew recently said on his show, if you disagree with something really strongly, come to me first, because I probably misquoted it. Uh, Don't necessarily take this as word for word what somebody said, because I have had to do some condensing. But what Coleman wrote to say was, to Elijah, he said, You talk about the years of dedicated practice it takes to become good at ballet. But dance is much bigger than ballet. There are other forms that have very different but just as strict standards, like ballroom dancing. There are forms that have communally understood standards that may not be formalized, like street dance. And there are forms that one engages in entirely for the pleasure of engaging in them, and forms that one engages in as performance. When someone says, I can't dance, someone might accurately say, just move however you feel like it to the music. That's dancing. I think there's a value both in affirming this person's ability to move to rhythm and a value in offering them some concrete building blocks. And this is, I think, where most people I talk to tend to land when it comes to using tools like meter and rhyme. Affirm the ability to move and offer the building blocks to get better. Then we get into this thornier territory of standards. And Coleman went on to say, I'm not convinced that there are no standards for contemporary free verse. But if those standards do exist, I wish they could be more clearly demonstrated. The message of start by writing whatever you feel like writing needs to be immediately followed up with. And then if you want to write something truly effective, Start honing your craft by doing X, Y, and Z. I'm going to come to Elijah's response to that in a little while, but this word standards, it's funny how uncomfortable it makes me. That's looking good. Uh, What are you doing here? Oh, I I, I just... How long have you been here? Two years. Uh, I was just looking for someone. Everyone's gone home. Yeah, I know. (laughs) It's just I've got this idea. Like, I mean, it's, um, it's, I want to try to, I want to dance with you. What? This question of standards. So somebody like Bernadette Mayer does live in my mind. And she reminds me who it is that makes the standards. And then it's really easy to fall completely under the spell of someone with a big, important-sounding degree in an editorial role who says, what you're doing is not good enough. It doesn't meet my standards. And to take that and use it as a reason to stop writing, I mean, that has absolutely happened to me. Absolutely. I've been stopped in my tracks for months longer because I felt like what I was doing was not measuring up to somebody's standards. Now, maybe maybe there's an element of that that's a positive thing because it slows you down and it makes you question, okay, what is my goal? What is it I'm actually trying to do? What am I trying to achieve? And if I don't meet that person's standards... Do I have standards of my own that I want to meet? 
I know that a writer like Bernadette Mayer is definitely not for everyone. I read her last book, Works in Days, and there's some some poems in that that are like beyond even my like hugely inclusive definition of poetry. She has the answers from that day's word jumble included as as poetry in the collection and I sort of looked at that and thought Bernadette that's it's a bridge too far for me I can't I can't go there with you (laughs) I hit my limit but god I'm glad that somebody like her exists I'm so glad that there that there was somebody like Bernadette Mayer who was just just constantly asking the question all right who set it up like this and is it still important that it's set up that way? Do we need to change the steps to the dance? Can we change the steps to the dance and just see what happens? I also heard from friend of the show, Liam Fernie. He said, I don't think Elijah is wrong. All poets would benefit from knowing more about rhyme and particularly meter, even if they deployed them sparingly. Too much free verse is prose with line breaks. And there there did seem to be, amongst everybody who wrote in, a recognition, an admission that, you know, a lot of what I'm reading at the moment, a lot of what's being published, seems to lack a bit of structure, seems to lack music, maybe lacks an organising principle behind the poem beyond just, this is what I feel. And this is where I want to bring in Elijah's response to Coleman, which I think kind of gets right at this question. He says, Obviously, I don't think it threatens the standards of ballet if your drunk uncle is dancing badly at a wedding. And by the same token, it doesn't threaten the standards of poetry for a teenager to write sentimental doggerel about their ex as a way of coping and venting. It would be much different if your drunk uncle was being advertised as the next Nijinsky, right? It would be different if the sentimental teenage dog rule were being advertised as the next big thing in poetry. Oh, wait. So I read that and I thought, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a lonely place to be. And it's a feeling that I have felt too at times that like, the wrong things, the wrong kind of poetry is getting the rewards, the publication, the attention. Um, you know, that's that's an awful feeling to feel like this art form that you love is moving in a direction away from what you personally think is important. And this got me to think about, you know, what are my standards? What do I personally care about? I mean, that's all I can really speak to. That's all I can really legitimately talk about on here is my own standards for a poem whether I'm reading it or writing it and I I sort of started listing them and I came up with a bunch of questions the first one of which was is there beauty here and then I thought well more than that am I interested first of all maybe it's not beautiful but am I interested am I maybe thrilled even by what I'm reading? Am I so interested that I'm gripped that I want to keep reading? 
Is time passing and I'm not noticing it? One of the things that thrills me is inventiveness with language. Not to the point of total confusion, but that's it's one of the things that, that I long to do in my own work. Uh, that I, I very, very rarely manage to bring some words or a phrase together in a way that's never been done before, that I've never seen. I think above all those questions for me is, is the poet telling me something true? Is it honest? I don't feel like the wrong things are being rewarded, but, but maybe there's a tendency to obscure the real thing with some linguistic fireworks. And I, and I guess just for me, I do get kind of bored by that. Then more than any of that, you know, I, I think as a reader, at least, I want to see the poem succeed on its own terms. So if I'm looking at a poem and I'm thinking, well, this is an experimental piece of bound poetry that is commenting on a current event, I'm thinking of um, a beautiful, beautiful poem by a poet called Jenna Osman called Dropping Leaflets. It's a very simple idea. She just cut out a bunch of headlines that came out after 9-11. She stood on a chair, she dropped them on the floor, and she wrote them down in the order that they appeared on the floor in front of her. And that poem, I mean, that idea I can... I can well imagine certain listeners uh, listening to that idea and going, oh my God, what, what? That's so stupid. (laughs) But that poem makes me cry. It succeeds on its own terms for me. It succeeds. Not every poem needs to be perfect. It doesn't always have to be a technically perfect variation from Swan Lake. Swan Lake is beautiful, but, you know, the other day I was waiting at the tram stop across from the hairdresser and I was watching a guy in the window just sort of doing a couple of moves from a dance routine that it seemed like he was working on. And there was just something about him. I just thought that there's something in that. There's some kind of spark there. And I couldn't look away. I want to dance with you. I want to dance with you your way at the Pan Pacifics. The Pan Pacifics? You want to dance my way at the Pan Pacifics? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You can't dance my way, you don't win. It's just because you've been overdoing it. If If you kept it simpler and dance from the heart. What? And had the right partner. Oh, I see. Uh, That's you, is it? I'm so, so lucky to have a listener like Anna, who is so thoughtful. And not only does she listen very deeply, but then she'll go off and do her own research on what I've been talking about and bring back a whole bunch of amazing stuff that that adds to my thinking. Uh, Anna wrote in to say about the Pio interview, she said, I think your interview with Pio and the collective effort members should be one for the National Poetry Archives. Same with the one on Canberra. It's so kind. I, I only mentioned that just to say that we don't have a poetry archive in Australia, but we do have the National Film and Sound Archive, which is in Canberra. 
and which has been it's fallen on tough times recently it actually had to crowdfund to do some of its digitization work recently um, which seemed like a, a real real like national tragedy to me um, but on Pio Anna said a lot of what the collective effort people had to say made me think of poetry in very new ways for example the idea of taking language apart and looking at it and playing with its components in concrete poetry and how that's related to what sound poetry does made me think of how that process is connected to memes and how small elements are selectively taken out of context and applied to new ones to create new meanings and connections. I, yeah, I kind of depend on memes like day to day in a different way that I depend on poems, but yeah, there is something about the condensation of, of like the collapsing of meaning and language into just like a little square with a dumb picture that, yeah, I don't know, I'm hesitating to say it's like a poem. I did read this piece in The New Yorker recently, interview with a dating influencer called Tinks, and uh, Tinks says, my brain has always thought in terms of memes I used to make memes for other brands, call me crazy, but I think that memes are kind of like sonnets. It's a structure that you can fit anything into to create new meaning, but it's a set structure that everybody understands. I don't really know what she means there, but I thought it was a very beautiful idea. (laughs) The idea of memes as sonnets. I mean, again, it just comes back to this thing of like, Poetry is just so glamorous. Just to like gesture towards sonnets in your New Yorker interview about your book on dating. It's like, ah, oh, it just gives you this little bit of cred. Anyway, um, I'm getting distracted from Anna's great email. She went on to say about Elijah's episode, I do find myself agreeing with a lot of what Elijah has to say about the importance of craft. I do appreciate how he's able to pick up on so much detail in the close readings he does on his podcast. What I find myself resisting is his idea that rhyme and meter and traditional forms are superior to free verse, or that free verse lacks deep, clear thought or wisdom or organizing principles. I've been slowly trying to figure out how to coherently refute this kind of argument, and I think I have a couple of ideas. Firstly, the idea of any particular cultural form needing to be taught to everyone because it's superior feels uncomfortably close to the principles of colonialism. Now, Anna's writing from Canada, so um, she's, she's, got some, she's got that particular perspective to draw on there. The Bernadette Mayer who lives in my head is, is definitely nodding at this. It's worth saying, too, that in the second part of Lajah's Case for Meter and Rhyme, he does directly address this and I think makes some some pretty strong points about the fact that it's not just meter and rhyme that comes from, you know, for lack of a better phrase, old dead white guys. Like, it was old dead white guys who also came up with the free verse side of things. Because Anna is such a complex thinker, she doesn't leave it there. She brings in some other ideas from the poet Robert Bly. She quotes Robert Bly, who says, The experience I've had writing certain poems suggests what advantage form can have in pulling out material that doesn't want to come out. There's some way in which 
struggle with form is connected with a desire to tell the whole truth and not just the attractive part. I've totally had that experience trying to trying to use form. It slows you down so much and you have to make such difficult decisions about what stays in and what gets cut. And yeah, you have to really zero in on like, what's, am I being honest? Am I telling the truth? Um, that's my experience anyway. I'm sure that's not the case for everyone. But Anna goes on to bring it back to the interview with Pio and she says, I was struck by the energy in Pio's voice as if the body and speech weren't nearly enough to allow him to say what he was compelled to say. And understanding something of his background as a self-described migrant who has experienced a lot of external force telling him how to fit in while not quite letting him in helped me understand that the constraints he experiences are largely external, not the self-imposed literary form chosen by Robert Bly, who could discard the constraint as soon as he was done writing. Someone like Payo might encounter the struggle with form and loss of self as a lived experience. An artist in this position has little need of artificial constraints to provide that motivational struggle. So, yeah, what an excellent point. It, it reminds me of something Josh said in class once, which was that language itself is a constraint. Having grammar is a constraint. Not having grammar is a constraint. And I, I think the point that he was making there was free verse is just the biggest misnomer ever. And when we write, to, to some degree, we're choosing a bunch of constraints to work within. But that's going to feel... The, the experience of that is going to be different for, for everybody. There are associations with the tools that we use. They come from history. They're not neutral. They are very much the master's tools. Again, Elijah does address this in the second part of The Case for Meter and Rhyme. And it's true that the literary figures who came in and, and kind of created the, the ground in which f the free verse culture that we have today grows, they were not particularly interested in opening up poetry to everybody. I mean, T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound are not the great equalizers, I don't think. But I mean, all these tools have strong associations. The experience of learning meter and rhyme is not going to be the same for every kind of student. I mean, the poetry classroom is not going to be the same for every kind of student. I want to I wanna bring into this latest episode um, of Matthew's show, he has a great conversation up at the moment with Alexis Sears about Marilyn Nelson's essay, Owning the Masters. And this essay and that conversation really, really dig into all this, like what is it to use these tools as somebody who is not the same as the person who created them? This is the part of the whole thing that I'm most interested in. It's requires the most complex thinking and it's also where I need to pull myself up and remember where I'm speaking from as in which country <laughs> I'm in because I can get so distracted as I constantly reference by these wonderful talented generous and you know these these incredible friends that I have made over in the U.S. And, and all the writers over there who I admire, I can, I can start to think that their battles are my battles. 
but um, it's just not the same over here. We've got a whole different thing going on. Our dance party has different people at it and we are listening to different music and we are we are dancing different steps. When you dance your steps, I understand how you feel because I make up my own steps too. You make up your own steps? Yeah, and now we both haven't got partners. Look, I mean, what are you carrying on about? You've never had a partner. You've been dancing with a girl for two years, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. but... And now you've come up to me who's been dancing since I was six years old and you say, you want to dance non-federation and convince the judges at the Pan Pacific Grand Prix with three weeks to train? Yeah. I don't think so. Which brings me to my sister in poetry, my muse. One day this girl is going to marry me, Louise Carter. Lou's book is finally coming out. I'll link to it. You can pre-order it. She is being published by Giramondo. The book is Golden Repair. It's fucking fun. It's sexy. It's smart. It's delicious. And uh, I'm going to get to launch it. And I cannot wait. But in the meantime, in the meantime, Lou also wrote in about this whole question. And again, she started by saying, I agreed with Elijah to a certain extent. Meter and rhyme are useful, interesting, and important to learn. Important to learn about at some point if you genuinely want to participate in lyric poetry as a century-spanning art form and conversation. But I'm glad I learned it after I essentially found my voice as a poet. I think the self-taught, instinctual thing has brought out my true artistry in a way that being forced to study classical piano as a kid extinguished my ability to play music. Again, Lou draws on this, this same kind of analogy that people have been making. She says, a person can have passion, talent and work ethic, but not training, and they can still make a successful song. And she points to Tom York, who can't read music, but, I mean, Radiohead's still a fucking great band. So... It's interesting because I I had the same and opposite experience to Lou. Like I've come to using these tools of meter and rhyme quite late. I think I probably had found my voice. I don't really know what that is still, but um, I know that I kind of found it by trying to copy Lou <laughs> because she, whatever it is, she has got it. Um, but the piano analogy is interesting because I personally am actually really glad that I was forced to do scales and play churny because now I can sit down and pick something out on the piano. I wouldn't be able to do that if I hadn't been forced to go to Mrs. Parrott's house every week. So I think to sort of sum up all all this feedback that I've, that I've gotten, and I'm, again, I'm just so grateful to be having these kinds of conversations with everyone. Um... It seems like most people are pretty much in agreement that, yeah, we want, we want to learn these tools, we want to have these tools, we, we want our writing to be better. And as I said before, I, I just feel like it's not that big of a deal here in Australia because it doesn't have that strange political overlay of formal verse being somehow um, 
connected to, to some kind of conservatism. And maybe we could even go so far as to say it doesn't, it doesn't have quite the same um, historical heaviness overlaid onto it. Maybe. I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure about that. I'm just going to like posit that as a possibility. But talking to Lou and thinking about this and thinking about the fact that I get to launch her book soon, I was just considering all these responses and, and particularly thinking about this thing that Elijah said about Nijinsky and the teenage dog rule being, being promoted as like the next big thing. I don't know exactly who Elijah has in mind when he's referring to that. I could take a guess. I will not. But uh, yeah, I was I was just thinking about it and I was like, God, I just don't feel that way. Like I just genuinely don't have that feeling. What I feel like, and I'm so lucky to be able to say this, I think. Maybe it's not luck, but... But um, I'm happy to be able to say this is I feel like I'm surrounded by exciting work and people who really care. Ours is a dance party that feels like it's actually really fun. And cool people do inventive stuff and write beautiful work. And I, I don't have that that horrible feeling that I think Elijah is gesturing towards there which is there's a bunch of people here who are getting away with it. Yeah, I think that's that's a lonely place to be. It's not that I've never felt that way, but I don't feel that way at the moment. I just feel, this is a big word for an Australian to use, but like, I just feel very proud. Just give me a try Look, go home. Just one hour. This is very embarrassing. I, I just need a chance. You are going to wake up tomorrow and feel like a real idiot about this. Do you want to dance your own steps or not? It's none of your business. Well, do you? Look, a beginner has no right to approach an open amateur. Yeah, well, an open amateur has no right to dance non-federation steps, but you did, didn't you? That's different. How is it different? You're just like the rest of them. You think you're different, but you're not, because you're just, you're just really scared. You're really scared to give someone you a go because you think, you know, they might just be better than you are. Well, you're just pathetic and you're gutless. You're a gutless wonder. Vivian Comieros, come on, Vivian Amidias! What's your name again? Fran. Yeah, Fran what? Just Fran. All right then, just Fran. Don't push me. Rumba. Oh, great, you can't even do a basic. You said one hour. One, two, three, four, five. I don't want to finish this because I know I said at the start that I, I was going to solve the problem of poetry teaching in the poetry workshop and uh, I actually do have some thoughts on this as well, mostly thanks to Wallace who sent me a really fantastic article um, that I'm just pulling up here by Anna Sigvardsen. It's called Teaching Poetry Reading in Secondary Education Findings from a Systematic Literature Review. We're getting pretty... Pretty um, 
well-researched here on Poetry Says. <laughs> we do our homework, or more likely, Wallace does our homework for us. Thank you so much, Wallace. Um, I just wanted to pull out a couple of little points from here. So one of the things that this article says is, something's probably obvious to everyone, but it's it's worth noting, in teacher education, little attention is paid to poetry teaching. And this reminded me of when my beautiful sister-in-law invited me to come and speak to her class a couple of times. Um, she worked in a couple of schools in the outer suburbs, and I think she might have been teaching English, or maybe she was just... Maybe this, is, this was just part of her normal classroom teaching, but she got me to come in and just talk about, like, what's, what is a poet? Um, and I think I, I maybe, maybe I read a poem to the class, maybe we discussed it. I can't actually remember what I did. It struck me then, just as it struck me when I was talking about the example of Wilfred Owen being brought into the classroom. Like, poetry is kind of bolted on to an English literature curriculum in this weird way that is sort of like, and here we come with another analogy, if you were learning, you're in a, a class of 12 people and you're all learning the flute and it's flute class and then for two weeks randomly you all have to play the oboe and your teacher's like, well, it's a wind instrument and... Um, you still just like blow into it and you move your fingers and it makes noise, but everybody's just like screeching, you know, it's not working because there's no scaffolding. There's so much that a teacher who is going to teach poetry would need to know, um, would need to, to know themselves and would need to have embedded in the class that's just not in the rest of the English curriculum. And that's probably why it doesn't work. Another bit I wanted to pull out here was um, uh, it's a it's a systematic literature review so it's talking about different ways of approaching poetry teaching and one of the ways that the writer pulls out is to um, this model of getting students to start with their own reading of a poem, make their own notes and then discuss what they've read in pairs and then after that initiating a whole class discussion where students are asked to talk about their reading. So when I read that, I kind of had this, this light bulb go off in my head where I was just like, this is exactly the problem with workshop, right? Like, why all the group discussion? Why is workshop always everybody talking at the same time about the one poem? If you think about it, you're in a poetry class, right? So... Look, let's be honest, you probably got a crush on someone, you probably hate someone else, and you really want to impress the teacher, right? Like, this is this is not just me. The Barrenfield guys said it. It's the erotics of teaching, okay? <laughs> this is not a neutral environment. As if you're handed somebody's poem, all you're probably going to do is just try to say the right thing. It's It's just not... A scenario where honesty is going to be that easy to come by. And so my suggestion for the poetry workshop, beyond just kind of probably just kind of doing away with it altogether, is to make sure that you have a lot, a lot, a lot of discussion one-on-one, -on -one, like in pairs between your students, so that at least 
before we start doing the big performative, like, oh, I really liked the line where you said blah, and, ah, oh, you know, I just thought that maybe, I was wondering if perhaps, before you do all that, you actually sit with somebody and you say, I don't get this bit. Oh, I hate this word. Oh, this is really good. They need to keep this. Just, just honesty. Now, how you communicate that back to the poet, I don't know. I'm not a classroom teacher. Um, <laughs> for good reasons. The, yeah. It's, it's tough, right? And, and the last bit that um, I want to pull out of this article that Wallace sent me uh, was a part that he underscored as well. He said, where the writer says, the development of a more complex poetry interpretation is a long process. More advanced interpretations and deeper general knowledge were only visible in students' responses in the later years. Indeed, teachers may find that even high-ability students in their final years struggle with poetry interpretation. But again, we don't treat it like that. We just treat it like it's it's just more flute class, but it's an oboe. And, and it's hard, and some people, you know, people are just going to struggle with it. But if it's something like if we admit that, it's like we lose something. I don't know. Final note, final note on this teaching issue. Uh, I've just, just this second heard back from the wonderful Nathan Cano, who, as I said to him, I've been, I've been seeing his name around for like a decade and we've never met. And it turns out he was listening to my show the whole time. Oh my God. Hi, Nathan. He said, he said about teaching, how we turn people onto poetry is so freaking complex. How can we meet individuals, communities, a whole nation perhaps, with poetry at the right moment in the right way and with the right poems for them? How do we successfully pass the fire on? It's frustrating when we see bad examples of it, and there are so many but I'm encouraged by the honesty of your frustration and encouraged to hear you caring so passionately about it. I think that's probably the key. So continue to care and to do so in a sustainable way that doesn't burn us out. Yeah, that's the other part, isn't it? The, the sustainability part. Oh boy, I've got nothing good to say about that. So I was trying to bring this all together. I was feeling really stuck. What I did was I went and watched a movie I watched the film High Society, which is a pretty old film with Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, and Grace Kelly. I had never seen a Grace Kelly film before. Christ above. <laughs> she is, turns out, hot take, um, Grace Kelly's really amazing. <laughs> the film is about 51% successful, which is kind of enough for me. And the characters, so Bing, Bing Crosby is... Grace Kelly's ex-husband. He's he's a bit of a layabout. He's got too much money. Uh, he's he's spoiled. He loved her, but for ambiguous reasons, they got a divorce, and they still love each other, but they can't be together. Frank Sinatra plays a reporter from Spy Magazine, and he comes to report on this this wedding that Grace Kelly is going to have to this guy George. It's going to be this this perfect Newport wedding. And, you know, she's a high society woman and he's a society man. Um, Frank Sinatra, as he's starting to cover Grace Kelly's wedding, he, he starts to kind of kind of fall in love with her. But Grace Kelly is, is resisting both Bing Crosby 
and Frank Sinatra for most of the movie. She's like, no, no, I'm going to marry the serious guy. I'm going to marry George. And there's this, this beautiful scene at the center of the film where Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra are getting good and drunk in the library on Champagne. And they sort of admit without saying it that they're both in love with Grace Kelly. They're open about it with each other. And they're just basically celebrating this fact. They're having a fun little party in the library. And because my mind was churning on all this, and because, again, we just just keep using analogies, I was sort of looking at these two characters and thinking, this is kind of like what people have been saying to me. This, these, this is sort of Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra are kind of like free verse poets who can see this, this perfection, this grace, this classiness of formal verse. It's not that they want to be Grace Kelly, but they, they appreciate her. They want her to stay how she is. They want to stay how they are. You know, they, they love her, they don't, but they don't necessarily want to possess her. They just want to keep drinking champagne in the library. I don't know if that quite works as an analogy. I, I did write back to Anna, and what I said to her was, I so appreciate your willingness to stay open and to think through the nuance. This is something that is missing in many conversations, in many conversations I have, not just in terms of poetry, but uh, life in general. It seems like we're all looking to each other to provide a perfect, watertight set of rules that will cover every scenario. So we will never get it wrong. So we'll be safe. But life is just not like that. God knows I am barely the same person day to day. Any rule that I come up with for how things need to be from now on inevitably needs to change. Tracy's no ordinary woman. So I understand. You are still in love with her. Oh, don't deny it, buddy. I wasn't going to. Oh? Does she know this? Yeah, she knows it. Nah, that ain't the way I get it. What's that? I have heard among this clan you are called a forgotten man. Is that what they're saying? Well, did you ever? What a swell party this is. And have you heard the story of a boy, a girl, unrequited love? Sounds like pure soap opera. I may cry. Tune in tomorrow. What a swell party this is. I wasn't entirely happy with my high society analogy, so I, I kept sort of turning it over in my mind, and then I, I figured it out. I came up with the perfect analogy. Poetry is like Genesis. Not the biblical Genesis. Genesis the band. It's the product of some skill, some training, some instinct, some talent. Not everyone who is involved is trained. Some people are great musicians who have worked really hard and are very good at their instrument. And some are just running on instinct and talent. And sometimes even that fails them like when Phil Collins did his solo at Live Aid and totally flubbed against all odds. I know that's not a Genesis song necessarily, but go with me. The other way that poetry is like Genesis is that most of the results are just there for a minute and then they kind of fade away, never to be thought about again. Most of it 
is pretty bloody forgettable. But every now and then, there's a day in the studio. Everybody's there. They're just fucking around. They've had exactly the right amount of cocaine. And someone comes up with a truly excellent riff. (laughs) 